The answer to the prayer, dear Jesus, I have a problem, it's me. To which Jesus says, dear child, I have the answer, it's me. And he's the answer as well to how we transition. Turn your eyes upon Jesus is what you need to be doing with the departure of one pastor and the arrival of another pastor. And it's for that reason that I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew today. Yes, Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. We're turning here and not to Romans, where we left it off in Romans 12, because I've been thinking, how can I best tee things up for Pastor Dave, for our new pastor? And how can I best serve you in these last, believe it or not, two weeks that I'll be uh, in the pulpit? As I thought about it, I could think of no better way than uh, to turn from the truths of the gospel that we've been seeing them in the book of Romans to the one who is the truth of the gospel, who is at the heart and soul of the gospel through a final uh, two-week series that I'll be calling Captivated by Christ. Captivated by Christ. And to do that, we're going to be going to the first gospel today, again, the gospel of Matthew. And then next week, we are going to go to what some have called the fifth gospel, the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ in his glory, all to be captivated more than any person, friend, pastor, or president, whatever, but to be captivated by Christ alone. Because if you are truly captivated by Christ alone, the the pressure will be, you know, off the pastor to have to play God. When so many pastors have fallen because they've put themselves in that position or because they've been put uh, in that position, which, of course, is the last thing you want to do with Pastor Dave, with this young father and to his dear young family. When Pastor Dave told us that his first series will be through the Gospel of Matthew, I thought, wow, what a great balance going from Romans to Matthew, from two years in this great epistle, the book of Romans, to two years in this gospel. I called the two together foundational for a whole new chapter. And what a great series for an incoming pastor to get the focus off him and onto Christ through the Gospel of Matthew. And what a great reinforcement of our mission to focus on, as Pastor Dave is titling this series on the Gospel of Matthew, knowing and showing Jesus. That's basically the first line of our mission. How can we best tee things up for him? Well, following Dave's lead, we're going to turn today uh, from him and to turn from me to be captivated by Christ alone. Our passage this week will also tee up one of Pastor Dave's deepest passions and really our first, our our fifth and climactic value as a church, the really the consummation of our mission, and that is engaging our world, which says we engage our neighbors, the underserved around us, and the nations sharing the truth of the gospel with love in action. And so if you haven't already, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. But before we jump in, let me just kind of put the Gospels in context and connect it with Romans a bit. Someone said, and I love this, Christ's words were like uh, thunder because his life was like lightning. His words were like thunder because his life was like lightning. And so powerful is that lightning that you just have to see it to be Uh, changed by it, which is why I believe two years in the book of Matthew with a pastor like Dave who doesn't focus on himself will be foundational to your next chapter. We've been seeing again and again in the book of Romans that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it's not ultimately up to us 
The Christian life is not a self-improvement project where we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. No, it's ultimately up to him. So much so that John says, when we finally see him in all his glory, presto changeo, we will be changed in that same glory. And that same dynamic can happen long before then through the pages of the Gospels because this is where Christ can become both our example uh, and our enablement through his lightning life and through the indwelling spirit of Christ who is in us as we're uh, captivated by Christ alone. And nowhere in the Gospels does he shine more brightly to make us like him uh, more fully than as the Savior of the lost, who came, as he said, not to, be, uh, to seek and to save that which is lost. And just one example of this is in Matthew 9. Eventually, Pastor Dave will get to these verses, but I suspect that of all the passages in Matthew that he wouldn't mind going through twice, through you know the perspective of two different pastors, this would be one of them. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ's mission, as we know, as he said later in Matthew, was to seek and to save that which is lost. And here we see how he did it. He did it, of course, by, like our fifth value says, engaging our world, but by engaging his world in a particular way, one that sets the example for how we should engage our world. We're going to see today that Christ identified with the irreligious, no matter how much it scandalized the religious. And he did this because of what he saw, that's going to be the first point, and because of what he felt as a result of what he saw when he was with them. And we too can see and feel the same because again, the good news of the gospel as we've seen in Romans is that he is our enablement from the inside out, the same one who is our example in the gospels from the outside in and that makes synergy for change. In the parallel passage in Luke 15, they said this man receives sinners and eats with them. The verb receive means to welcome with open arms. It it connotes hospitality, even intimacy with sinners. And the form of the verb connotes what's customary, an ongoing action versus versus just a singularity, you know, a one-time action, because it was his habit to do this. So much so that in Matthew 11, 19, they called him a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. But not only did he accept them, he took it a step further. He he took a small step for the son of man, you might say, but a great leap for these sons of Abraham who were very separatistic, especially when it came to being kosher with what they ate. According to our passage for today, he ate with them, which is the core of the offense that they took. 
which meant that he broke their dietary laws and became unclean. He became impure. He became worldly. But he knew that you could be worldly in man's eyes, but still be godly in the eyes of the only one in the universe whose opinion matters. He knew the difference between biblical standards of morality and cultural uh, standards of morality, a difference that many churchgoers have not really learned. And he was willing to risk the, uh, uh, the appearance of impurities. He so loved them to identify with the impure, all because of what he saw and what he felt when he was with them. Such identification is really, if you think about it, the scandal, uh, not just of what he did here, but of the whole incarnation, how God could take on sinful flesh and become man. How he could become like one of us and still be God. How we could become like one of them and still be Christians as we too seek and save that which is lost. And to do it, he identified with the irreligious, again, no matter how it scandalized the religious. With the religious, he emphasized truth. He brought truth in love, you might say. But with the irreligious, he emphasized love. He brought truth in love. And we too are to know and show the truth and love of Jesus Christ, like our mission says, in the same way and with the same emphasis. But we often do the opposite. We often have the opposite emphasis. I th- in fact, I think a telltale sign of how we view non-Christians in particular is how we view our post-Christian culture in general. So often we tolerate the church's sin, but we're like totally intolerant of the culture's sin. We are oblivious to the church's condition, but furious at the culture's condition. When in fact, the sin statistics for the church are about the same, if not in some cases worse than the culture. Even in fundamental evangelical churches, so many are, are so like the rest. All the surveys show it. We give about, away about as little of our income as the rest of the country, about 2.5% per household. And the other statistics, well, whether you're talking about lying or cheating on income tax or rates of abortion or the basics like loving our enemies or the qualities of true Christianity that we've been seeing in Romans 12, too often they're sorely lacking in the church. America's problem is not just with the darkness. It's, it's with those who are supposed to be the light. It's not just with the earth, it's with those who are supposed to be the salt of the earth. It's not just with the culture, it's with the church. Too often we're not practicing what we preach, and rightly, therefore, they call us hypocrites. So many of those who call themselves Christian have lost their saltiness, and in Christ's word are good for nothing, he said, except to be trampled underfoot, which is an image for the judgment of God on the church. So, who would Christ's finger if he were alive today? The tax gatherers and sinners in the world or the hypocrites in the church? The answer, still like thunders from the fields of Palestine. More often than not, he saved his most condemning words for the religious and his most compassionate words for the irreligious. And why did he do that? Well, again, two reasons. They're at the heart of the passage. First, it's because he saw something when he was with them. He saw those, as it says in our passage, who are sick and in need of a physician. And what does this mean? Well, 
Today, I'm going to follow Christ's example, looking to Jesus, turning our eyes on him, not just in his, uh, who he is, but in the way he taught. And he used stories, so I'm going to illustrate our, the teaching with a story, just like he did. Rebecca Piper wrote about someone she had written off as a tax gatherer uh, and a sinner. It's in this, uh, this book she wrote, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. Evangelism as a way of life. It's become a classic and it's a, a, a must read. Listen to her story. Several years ago, I was on a Greyhound bus sitting next to a woman in her late 60s. Her face was hard. She was chain smoking. She wore thick pancake makeup and her eyes were vacant. I started a conversation, but she was blunt and cold, so I quickly stopped and began working on a talk I was preparing. So she, uh, she was so spiritually closed, I felt. But a few minutes later, to my surprise, she said, you look busy. What are you writing? I gulped and told her, so you work for God, huh? She said, answered cynically. I knew that was a dead end, so I changed the subject. I said, what's your name and what do you do? She said, I'm Betty. Listen, I'm really busy too, just like you. I've got lots of friends. I just never have a moment to myself. Of course, I, uh, well, I live alone, but I have so many hobbies I never even noticed. I said, you know, I've never lived alone. I guess I'm kind of afraid I'd get lonely. Suddenly, she spun around in her seat and looked at me with great intensity. Look, girl, you talk about lonely. I'm so lonely, I want to die. Half the time, I feel I already have. What I said about having lots of friends, yeah, well, I don't. Nobody cares. My heart is bad, and when I feel funny, I run outside, because if I die, at least somebody then would know. You talk about God, I'm going to tell you something. I came here to see a guy. I think he kind of liked me. He was lonely like me, and we just got on. I called his apartment, and he didn't answer, so I called the landlord and asked him if Jack was there. He told me to hold on. When he came back on the line, he said, Jack's here, all right. He's dead. Then Betty said, is that what'll happen to me? I just lie dead on a floor for two days and nobody knows? What's your God got to say about that? I mumbled something like, makes you wonder if there really is a God, doesn't it? Makes you wonder if where in the wor world Jack is now. She answered, I keep asking those questions, but I got no answer. Been asking those questions over and over again since it happened. When did you learn that Jack had died, Betty, I asked. Last night, and I've been up all night just asking the silence for an answer. I wanted to weep, not only for her tragedy, but for my blindness, for what she didn't see. I'd sat next to a woman who I dismissed on sight as being unopened spiritually, but she had been up all night asking ultimate questions. The conversation moved to other things. I tried to think of some way to show God's love. It was clear that for Betty, words were cheap. Later, I said, listen, I go to Salem fairly regularly. What, what if I visit you when I come? You don't mean it. Sure, you could come. Listen, I, I'm a great cook. Uh, cook, too, and you could meet my dog. <laughs> We'd have a great time. But when we got there, she became tough again. As we got off the bus, she said, well, kid, it's been okay meeting you. See you around. She walked off. And when she got to the other side of the station, she stopped, turned around, and called, oh, God, Becky, please don't forget me. And then she left. I wish there was a happy ending to Betty's story, but there isn't. I spent nights with her and her dog, 
I brought students over to meet her, and they loved her too. But to my knowledge, she only took. She never gave. Perhaps she was unable to. In fact, she used us. She was so starved for love that she could only gulp it down and grab for more. She came to know about the source of our love. She knew about Jesus, but she never chose to follow him, at least not while we knew her. Then she concludes with this. We don't know the end of anybody's story. And we must never assume that people are as they appear. So what do you see? The Pharisees wrote such people off as sinners in need of total condemnation. Christ saw them as those who are sick and in need of some compassion. Do you see what he saw? And moving on now, do you feel what he felt? What did he feel? Well, back to Matthew 9, verse 13. Go and learn what this means, he said to the Pharisees. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And he was exhibiting that to them as he did again and again in the Gospels when moved with compassion, it says, he touched them, he spoke to them, he fed them. That is, I want your compassion and not your church going. I want your compassion and not your religion. The word that's used for compassion here is better translated mercy, which means to to be sorry for, to sympathize with, to have a bit of pity. What he felt is what he felt as a result of what he saw, as a feeling of compassion rather than condemnation. It's what happens when we start seeing sinners like Christ did. And what's the basis for seeing sinners in that way? I think it's best explained maybe through another story, one that's like a parable. Christ would put people through these vicarious experiences of uh, parables to teach them lessons that they'd never forget. And this one that I'm about to tell you explains so much, a story I've not forgotten, though I read it 30 years ago. It's from that old syndicated columnist, Sidney Harris. I used to love his articles. It's titled, On Being Too Hasty, in judgment. Marshall McLuhan's sudden death at year's end reminded me of an important lesson I learned some dozen or so years ago. It was probably a lesson I should have learned long before then. He and I were scheduled to debate before a large audience in Windsor, Canada, so large, in fact, that the site had to be changed to Detroit to accompany the overflow demand. McLuhan, then, at the crest of his popularity, the guru of media, was, of course, the drawing card. I was only his foil, something like a prelim boxer signed up just to give the champ a chance to show his stuff. We were debating about education, but it turned out to be no contest at all. The issue was never joined. Instead of sticking to the subject, McLuhan wandered all over the map, talked about what he wanted to, and totally ignored the points I made. It was obvious that he was unprepared and indifferent to the topic assigned to us. I was not only disappointed, I was disgusted. His performance was insolent to the sponsors, insulting to the audience who had come to hear a clash of opinions and got just a rehash of his well-known views on messages and media. I told my family, the man's a a palpable fraud. That's halfway through the story. And Christ could very well at that point have turned to the disciples, to the Pharisees, and said, tell me, what should the sponsors of this event have done? 
embarrass him in the press, they would say, hound him off the stage. Stop payment on the check. But Christ would have gone on to say this. A few weeks later, I read in the papers that McLuhan was in the hospital in Boston. It seems that for a long time, unknown to anyone, including himself, a tumor had been growing in his brain, affecting his behavior and control. He was sane and rational in most ways, but the ailment derailed his concentration to the vanishing point. And then he concludes, whenever I am tempted, as I often am, being by temperament a judgmental person, to, whenever I'm tempted to pass a hasty verdict on unattractive behavior or bizarre behavior, I think back to that afternoon in Detroit and the nervous figure pacing the stage with that ugly thing growing minute by minute inside his delicate brain. Debate. <laughs> it's a marvel the man could stand up at all. <sighs> Truly, this story is a parable of so much. You see, there's an organic condition that's at the root of all sin. Yes, sin is a decision, but it's also a disease over which they have no control. Yes, it's a choice, but it's also a condition that they were born with, and they can't help themselves. Yes, they can be so flagrant in their sin, but they are also so often so ignorant in their sin. Which is why Christ himself said, at the worst evil ever perpetrated in the history of the world from the cross, Father, forgive them for what? They know not what they do. That's why Paul said, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, 1 Tim 1.13, yet, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. It's why God sent Jonah to Nineveh a city whose wickedness exceeded almost anything on the face of the earth. They were like the terrorists of their day. They were so flagrant in their sinning, but equally, they were so ignorant. So what did God focus on? Therefore, God said, should I not have, here it is again, compassion on Nineveh, Jonah 4:11, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left. They're clueless. Jonah wanted them condemned. God wanted them saved. Which would you have wanted? They have a huge disability. So should we not have mercy? What do you see? What do you feel? You know, in our first church, I ran a Tuesday morning discipleship group for some of the adult singles We'd been doing a study on, on the character attributes of Christ as seen in the Gospels. And each week we'd study one attribute uh, as our example for the week. And then we'd pray that God would give us the opportunity to incarnate that attribute during the week by calling on him for our enablement. Lord, I don't have it in me. I don't want to respond to this. Lord, help me. One Tuesday morning we studied his mercy and in particular his love for the lost. And then for the next seven days, we looked for divine appointments uh, orchestrated by God to help us apply this teaching, to let him work the same miracles of mercy by his spirit through us. 
The next Tuesday, one of the women came back with a story to tell. She was a stewardess. We loved this woman. Her name, her name was Margarita Jaime. Remember Margarita, Julie? I don't know how many times she was in our home, but on Thursday night that week, she was on a flight from Burbank to Denver. Uh, she was responsible for the first class, and she, so she finished early, and so she went back to see if anyone needed any kind of help. And a man who was sitting alone by a window asked for scotch on the rocks. She said that when she got to the kitchen, she wondered something out loud. She said, who in the world would order scotch on the rocks at 7 a.m.? Another woman, another stewardess who had been working that section, said in a rather scornful voice, she said, why, an alcoholic, of course, he's an alcoholic as if she wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. Margarita went back, gave him the drink, took time to really look at him for a bit, and here's what she saw when she took the time to look. He was in his 30s, looked like a businessman, Hispanic. She could tell he was probably Cuban. He had red eyes, sad eyes, a drawn face, just looking out the window. That's what she saw. And guess what she felt by the Spirit of God in her? As she walked away, she thought, that dear man, who knows what pain he's trying to drink away. And then she felt the Spirit prompting her, go and tell him about me. They were landing, and so all she, all she had time to do was to go back and to put a gospel track on the tray with a smile. And then she returned to her seat uh, for the landing. And when they got to Denver, there was a winter storm coming, and so people were in a hurry to leave the plane. She said they were, she was helping an elderly lady to the end of the jetway. When the same man came up to her, he hugged her, and he said with tears in his eyes, how did you know? People were pushing by them on either side, so she ushered him behind the podium, and he was shaking, and he was crying, and he, he kept saying, how did you know? How did you know? And then she started to cry, which is just like Margarita. She's got a heart of compassion, and she said, know what? How did you know I needed Jesus? He was late for a connection, and so he was furiously writing down his name and address, and he gave it to her, and he said, how did you know my children, my children? You must meet my children. And then he hugged her and shook her hand, and he was down the concourse. As it turned out, one of our church secretaries was from his hometown, Burbank, California, and she just happened to know of a Spanish church with a Cuban pastor in that very town, and the pastor knew exactly where he lived when we called him. In fact, several members of the church lived on the same block, and long story short, that man is now a believer. There are so many stories, not just in books or articles from elsewhere, but from right here but you people don't toot your horn, and so not many know about it. Like one of our couples who moved near downtown Loveland, and they quickly saw that it was across the street from someone who had put out a shingle offering her services as an astrologer and a palm reader. And they could feel their judgmental reaction, and so first they dealt with it. They, they prayed that God would give them a heart of compassion. And he did, and long story short, she ended up in their kitchen once a week, month after month, unloading her problems. And finally, just last year, get this, they led her husband to Christ. 
Maybe he was so happy she wasn't unloading on him anymore. But it was an authentic conversion. One of our widows befriended a man who trimmed her trees and did other things around her home. And long story short, she cultivated that relationship, prayed for him until he'd come to her for advice, and she became like this wise grandma that he'd want to listen to. And just a few months ago, she led him to Christ in a miraculous conversion with many tears. She told me about it the Sunday after it happened. A few weeks ago, Julie went out for a birthday lunch with one of our members, and Julie saw that this member always says to the waitress, "Uh, we're about to pray. Is, Is there anything we can pray for you? And this time, the waitress broke down in tears on the spot and talked about how hard it is to be a single mother, and she got prayed for in the name of Jesus. And a seed was planted that she'll never forget. I think, I think of three of our own who passed away last year, of Angel Street and how she reached out over the years, how everyone in Safeway knew her name, the Safeway at Taft and Eisenhower, how she virtually adopted that store, how one of them broke down crying when she found out that she had gone. Angel's son Patrick said, you can go anywhere and run into someone who knows her. She knew everybody. I think of how she would play hostess to a whole neighborhood every year along with Floyd through their annual bluegrass festival at Colorado and Eisenhower, complete with 15 gallons of homemade ice cream, became a second week in August neighborhood tradition that'll be sorely missed in these days of, of separation and division. And it wasn't just all around her home once a year. It was inside her home all through the year. I think of Chet Goodhart's decades-long influence on the Valentine's Day Parade and on so much else in behalf of the Sweetheart City, along with Norma Jean. So much so that at his memorial service, none other than Mindy McLuhan, president and CEO of the Loveland Chamber of Commerce, was one of three that gave this heartfelt eulogy for him. I think of Mike Harlow. Right, Ed? And the deep impact he had on his doctors and the medical workers through the years. Just talk to Ed Woofter about that. Too often, we don't appreciate people until they're gone. Too often, we paint all our warts red. We do that with people. We do that with the church. And we've done that with this church. But there are many more like that that, we, that have... <laughs> like these three who have passed that have yet to go. So don't go too soon. We need you. I think of the landlord, a member here, longtime member of this church who has such a heart for his renters, who has has such an impact year after year. And some of our widows at a local assisted care facility who every year at Christmas give presents to the residents with with a note from Jesus. I think of those from our numbers who God moved into a Loveland community that was racked with bitter division and distrust among the homeowners, the the Fayas and the Murphys and the Howards and the Jacks and Carol Taylor and who knows who else and how the whole character of that community has changed. Thanks in good part to the preserving influence of the salt of the earth. I think of those who serve at Room for Hope and 
Lago Vista and the Alpha Center and Life Choices. And as so many others who are out there shining the light, sharing the faith, salting the earth, unsung heroes, because you don't toot your horns, whose stories, many of which won't be told till glory. There's so much else I could share. It's like the writer of the Hebrews said, what more shall I say? Time would fail me if I were to tell you more about these, about these great hearts who patrol the roads. That's how Joseph Newton put it, the great preacher of the 19th century. He said, the human procession is endlessly fascinating. It is thronged. He had eyes to see. It is thronged with figures that are quaint, fantastic. He made distinctions between people. He got to know them. Quaint, fantastic, heroic, ignoble, joyous, sorrowful, ridiculous, pathetic, some marching, some straggling, all wending their way through time. There are sulkers who shirk danger and wander to no purpose. And, and here it is, there are great hearts who patrol the roads. And then he concludes, we often walk with angels unaware. And you're sitting today, more likely than not, with angels right here unaware. And I praise God for all of you and for all the stories that Julie and I have heard since coming here. We praise God that with someone like Pastor Dave on board, there will be many more stories to tell because you've called a young pastor with a great heart who has a passion for patrolling the road. It's, it's a most unusual combination in a pastor to be passionate about going uh, deep into God's word, but also for going wide uh, into God's world, for knowing and showing the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ, as our mission says, through those who see people who are in need of a physician with hearts of compassion.